Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Previously on Truth and Justice. A critical element of any investigation that is often overlooked is the study of what is known as victimology. Especially when you have a crime scene like this one. With little to no physical evidence, no eyewitnesses, and no obvious leads. When the FBI is faced with investigating cases like this, cases where forensics are of little use, they shift their focus onto human behavior. The concept, while it may seem complicated, is actually just a great big dose of common sense. Every victim is chosen by a particular offender, at a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular reason. If we can figure out that reason, why the victim was chosen at that place and time, It's like holding a mirror up to the offender. Every action is preceded by a decision. Sometimes it's conscious and sometimes not. Nonetheless, there was a thought that led to the decision to take the life away of an innocent 18-year-old boy on Easter Sunday in 1991. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Law? Who is the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Bill Little's murder is precisely the type of crime scene that requires a thorough behavioral analysis in order for us to know which direction to set our course in in the early stages of our investigation. Was this a random robbery that resulted in a murder? Or was it something much more personal? Using the FBI's methodology of profiling the crime scene and the unknown offender is our best bet at narrowing down our suspect pool. We've covered some basic victimology at this point, but we still have a few more steps to go before we can develop the profile. We need to reconstruct the crime scene as best as possible and analyze the medical evidence. Essentially, we need to know what exactly happened at the Clark Station on Easter Sunday, 1991, before we can even begin to attempt to discern who killed Bill. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to begin our assessment from the outside and work in. Now, at this point, we've heard witness Danny Martinez's version of events, at least his first version. He was putting air in his tire when he heard two bangs, which he thought might have been his car backfiring. 
He does the back and forth shuffle and then he sees a man exiting the station. He says that the man walked out the door and then walked the 10 or 15 feet across the front of the building, quickly turning around the corner towards the back of the building or towards the alley behind the station. I was curious how long it would actually take a person to cover that much ground and disappear out of sight. So, out the door. so I timed myself. I walked at a reasonably brisk pace, opening the door to the studio and moving about 20 feet to my right. The trip took less than 5 seconds. 4.2 seconds to be exact. And that's important because everything was happening very fast in those critical moments. Martinez was turning towards the station, Pila was approaching from the south on foot, and Officer Paul Williams was approaching in his squad car. A big picture view of this scene tells us that all three of these events happened simultaneously, or at least within the same minute. But when we're talking about the critical event of the offender exiting the building, every second matters. Jeff Pilo says that he didn't see anyone but Martinez in the parking lot. But how long did it take him to walk to the scene from the location where he parked his car? Could he have missed the man exiting the gas station by simply looking for his radio microphone for a couple of seconds? I don't know, but it sure doesn't seem like Danny Martinez would have any reason to make up a story about seeing a man leaving the building. And it seems really unlikely that he would make up a story and just happen to describe a man wearing the exact same clothing that Jerry Gutierrez described. And then add to that the fact that there were actually two more eyewitnesses. Across the street and two doors down from the Clark Station at 807 East Empire, two teenagers, Carlos and Juan Luna, were watching TV. When around 8.20 p.m., they looked across the street to the gas station through a bedroom window. A family member of theirs usually worked the Sunday night shift at the station, and the kids were looking to see if she was inside, hoping to score a free candy bar or two. When they looked across the street, it's well over 200 feet to the station from Carlos's bedroom window, they saw a man walk out of the gas station and head east and north towards the alley. At trial, Carlos described the man as wearing, and I'll quote from the transcript, quote, I remember the individual wearing a black cap, baseball cap, and a trench coat, a black coat, and blue jeans, end quote. In his original statement, there's no mention of the length of the coat, but Carlos told police and the jury that the man appeared to be carrying something under his black coat as he walked around the front of the building. So now we have Jerry Gutierrez describing a man in the store wearing a black hat, black jacket, and blue jeans at 8.05 p.m. And Martinez describing a man wearing a black hat, dark jacket, and blue jeans leaving the station around 8.21 p.m. And Carlos and Juan Luna describing a man wearing a black hat, black jacket, and blue jeans exiting the store at around 8.20 p.m. I think at this point it's safe to say that a man most definitely exited the building at about 8.20 right about the time that Pilo and Williams arrived on the scene. Now, let's hear how Officer Williams recalls things unfolding in this 1999 interview. Um, on that day, I was assigned to the, what we designate as Area 2 uh, in Bloomington, and I was added to that night. Um, and I was on patrol when this call came in in my squad car. Um, I was a little bit southwest of the Clark Station when the call came in. And I responded and came up Chestnut Street and turned on to Linden, uh, going north, and uh, pulled up, shut my lights off, and Officer Pilo arrived at about the same time, and he got out of his car. And I pulled my squad up a little closer to the uh, intersection of Linden and Empire so that I could see the front of the gas station. And I stayed in my car 
trying to see if uh, there was some movement inside the station or um, just exactly what was going on before I got out of my car. Now, when you arrived and you heard Officer Pilo uh, uh, say he was present at the scene also, you started to move a little, up a little closer or did you just exit your squad? Nope, I stayed in my squad. I pulled up um, my car a little bit closer to the intersection so that I could see a little bit more of what was going on. Now, why didn't you squad squad car? Excuse, let me get something just a little bit clearer. When you stopped your car, first arrived on 1023, was Officer, did Officer Pilo call out prior to you or after you that he was 23 also? Well, I don't know uh, Detective Katz exactly. My recollection is that he called out before me because I knew he had beaten me there. And that's why I stayed in my car. I thought, well, we'll have one officer on foot, and we'll have one officer in the car. Um, and that, that's, that's my recollection. I knew that he was there before I got there. And you're just talking seconds, 5, 10, 20 seconds? Minimal amount of time. Uh, I wasn't far from the scene, and Jeff must have been closer even, because it didn't take me but just a short time to get there. And uh, to answer your question directly, maybe 5 to 20 seconds. It wasn't much. Okay. Now you're in your squad. Officer Pivo says he's, he's arrived. And whatever, however it happened, even simultaneously, you also said you were there. You have the parking lot clock a visual on the clock on the parking lot, correct? Right. What did you see? Well, as I recall, um, there was nothing that struck me out of the ordinary. There were people in the lot um, standing, you know, next to their cars and the gas pumps. Um, I, I was looking for something out of the ordinary, um, maybe a car that would race out of the parking lot real fast or something. I didn't see any of that. It, uh, my recollection is there was a couple of people in the lot um, doing what people at gas stations do, get gas or, or whatever. Um, it was lit up, the gas, the parking lot was, it was open, in other words, for business. Did you, do you recall what type of vehicles you saw in the lot, how many? I don't recall the types. Um, I think there were two vehicles, uh, but I don't recall the, the types or the colors. Um, my feeling was that, that, that whatever had happened or whatever was going on at the, at the gas station, they weren't related. And, but the, by the way they were acting, uh, which was non-suspicious, and therefore I disregarded them pretty much. Now, you saw the vehicles. What else did you see? Well, as my recollection serves me, that the front of the station was uh, lit, and I was focusing my attention, hoping that I would see, or thinking that I might see, um, the attendant inside the station. You know, a lot of these calls that we get are false alarms, and somebody hits a button or something by accident. And so I was kind of pulled up there, uh, and the first thing I looked for was something out of the ordinary, which I didn't see, so then I thought, well, now I'll maybe see the attendant walking around, or see people coming and going, uh, you know, in an unexcited fashion, which would lend you to think that nothing out of the ordinary was going on. Um, I didn't see any of that. Uh, nobody came, you know, nothing happened that uh, convinced me one way or the other what was going on. Now, did you see an attendant in the station moving around? No. Did you see any movement in the station moving around? The first person that I recall after I got there that went up to the station was Officer Pilo. And Prior to Officer Pilo, did you see any uh, anybody? You said you were focusing on the entrance, which is, there's only one I take it? 
Right, that, that I know of. So anybody going in would have to come out that entrance also? Right, it'd be the door that faces Empire Street. Which would be facing south? Right. And you're focusing on that. Did you see anybody come there and go out that door? Not that I remember. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Officer Williams doesn't recall seeing anyone exit the station. But the real question is, would he have seen anyone given the time of his arrival on the scene? Remember... The man that Martinez and the Luna boys saw leaving the station was only visible for about four seconds. And there was a lot more going on in that parking lot than we think. So the point I'm, I'm alluding to finally is from your vantage point, there really was no obstruction of your view of the entrance and exit to the... The only obstruction were many cars that drove by on the street, okay. you know, intermittently. And you saw no movement? I didn't see anything. Okay, great. Now... Officer Pilo arrives. He, he was there first. And you saw him walking up to the gas station. Right. <clears throat> did you did you see him tell anybody do anything or? Seems like when Jeff Pilo arrived and he came walking through the lot, um, the people in the lot knew that something wasn't right because here's a policeman showing up on foot, and I pulled my squad car up by now. As Jeff was pulling, walking up, and I pulled up closer, I think the people in the lot knew that, you know, something wasn't right. And I don't recall what Jeff said. Um, it would not have been unusual or hard for me to believe that Jeff would have told somebody to stay back or, you know, don't come in or something like that. But by that time, I was trying to cross the street. And I was trying to pay attention to cars so I didn't get hit. Did you hear Jeff call out anything? When Jeff got up there, he walked in and, and uh, walked right back out really quick. I said, hey, you know, the guy's, you know, man on the ground in here. Now, did he tell you that, or did he put it over the radio? No, he told me that. Okay. So at that time, you were out of the car? Right. And not in the parking lot? Right. So it's pretty clear that Pilo arrived at the scene first. And I believe it's just as clear that the man that exited the building was gone before Williams ever got there. But how did Jeff Pilo miss the man exiting the building? I think that there was just too much happening all at once. As he approached the scene, he's on foot, he's speaking into his shoulder mic, he's seeing Martinez going back and forth, he's trying to read a license plate number from over 100 feet away, and within seconds, another truck pulled into the station. All it would have taken would be for Pilo's attention to be taken away from the front of the store for four seconds to miss the man leaving. As I said before, I don't think it's possible for Pilo to have missed Martinez coming face-to-face with the man leaving the building. Martinez was where he was focusing his attention. 
But given the totality of the evidence, I believe Bill's killer did exit the gas station as Pila was approaching, and he just missed it. And that is a tragedy. Because had Pilo seen the man leaving, or had Martinez pointed and said, hey, he went that way, both Pilo and William surely would have pursued the suspect as he was fleeing the scene. And very likely, Bill's killer would have been caught on that very night. Given all of the witness statements, the cash register tape, and the silent alarm timestamps, we now have a fairly solid window of time to work from. I believe the evidence is indicating that Bill's killer was inside the station and threatening him by 8.05 p.m. And Bill was shot at around 8.20 p.m. So what happened inside of the Clark station during those critical 15 minutes? To answer that, I'm turning to the trial testimony of Illinois State Police crime scene investigator Ed Kalal. Ed arrived at 802 East Empire at 9.21 p.m. on the night Bill Little was killed. He met with Bloomington PD officers and the deputy coroner, Dixie Smith. They briefed him on the situation, and he began his investigation of the crime scene. Kalal notes that the cash register was found open and the insert was missing. Unfortunately, I don't have all of the crime scene photos that he's referencing in his testimony, so we're going to have to work from his descriptions. He explains that there is a stool or chair behind the counter that's been knocked over, and Bill's body is positioned beside the counter, in about the same place where Gutierrez saw the man standing when he went in to pay for his gas. The layout inside the station is pretty simple, although not that simple to describe using just audio. So I'll try to describe it to give you a mental picture. When you walk into the station, immediately to the left are shelves that look like they contain vehicle maintenance type items, oil, antifreeze, etc. Behind those shelves is an L-shaped counter. It begins on the west side wall, or the left side, about six feet into the store, extends to the east about six feet, and then turns north or goes towards the back for about another six feet. Now the portion that's facing the front door is filled up completely with racks of cigarettes and the meter that keeps track of the gas that's pumped outside so customers can't approach that side of the counter. They have to continue past that and then face the clerk towards the west of the building. Now that counter stops about two feet short of the back wall, and this is where the clerk would walk to get behind the counter, and again, that's where the man Gutierrez saw was standing. On that back wall, there's a doorway that goes back into a storage room and employee restroom just off the end of the counter. Bill's body was found face down right there with his feet still behind the counter and his head near that doorway to the back storage area. The tipped-over stool was located in the space behind the counter near Bill's feet. Kalal goes on to describe the process of performing electrostatic lifts from the floor of the gas station. This is a process where footprints can be identified in the dust or dirt on the floor. He also processes the scene for fingerprints. Unfortunately, since the gas station is a public place, neither the lifts or the fingerprints were really of much use in the investigation. Especially back in 1991, prior to the National Fingerprint Database, APHIS's implementation. But to answer your question, no. None of the prints match the man who was later convicted of the murder. Because of the fact that this is a public place, there's really not a lot of forensic evidence that can be used. In fact, at trial, Kalal explains that the only forensic evidence collected from the scene was, quote, but really latent prints and the blood and shoe impressions were the only things we collected at that time, I believe, end quote. 
Now, we'll get into forensics in a future episode. Today, I want to focus on the crime scene itself to see if there are any clues present that could indicate exactly what happened. If there was a struggle that led to Bill being shot, or did the offender pull the trigger without necessity to do so? Unfortunately, Trooper Kalal doesn't offer us much insight into the crime scene itself. In his testimony, he notes that the stool is knocked over, the position of Bill's body, the register's open and the tray is missing, and that nothing seems to be disturbed in the back storage room or office. And he also notes that in a three-block search, the insert from the cash register was not located. To date, the insert has never been recovered. There are no indications in any of the police reports or trial testimony that I've seen that gives any indication that a struggle took place inside the Clark station that night. With the exception of the stool laying on its side, it appears that nothing else was disturbed. No reports of items knocked off any shelves or any signs of a fight. It is, however, noted that Bill's wallet was still secure in his pocket when his body was found, and it contained a $20 bill. I'm really starting to think that this wasn't a robbery that resulted in a murder. Rather, it's looking a lot like a murder that resulted in a robbery. And to further that hypothesis, I want to direct your attention to the testimony of gas station manager Donna Bernard. Donna was tasked with completing Bill's shift sheet on the morning after his body was found. At the start of every shift, the clerk would count their drawer down to $50 and inventory all of the cigarettes. At the end of the shift, they would repeat the process, making sure that everything is balanced out. If the register showed that 20 packs of cigarettes were sold, then there should be exactly 20 packs of cigarettes missing. If the gas meter machine showed that $500 in gas was sold, then there should be $500 worth of gas sales on the register tape and $500 worth of cash between the register and the floor safe, and so on and so forth. You get the picture. When auditing Bill's final shift, Donna found that there was $92.92 in cash missing and a $4.63 gas variance, meaning there was $4.63 worth of gas that was pumped that wasn't entered into the register. She explained that there are a number of reasons why this might be the case. And those reasons not to exclude someone buying gas and the attendant pressing the no-sale button to take the money rather than keying in the actual amount of the sale. Donna was also asked if any cigarettes were missing, and none were. Every single pack and carton of cigarettes that should have been there according to the inventory were present and accounted for. So, to sum this up for you, based on what we know so far... The evidence seems to indicate that Bill's killer spent over 15 minutes inside the station with him. There are no signs of any struggle during that time. Bill was shot twice about five minutes after the last no-sale was pressed and the silent alarm was triggered. The man that killed Bill left on foot, walking, not running, carrying the tray containing just over $90 from the register. Then the unsub, or unidentified subject, apparently looked right at Danny Martinez in the parking lot and didn't threaten him, shoot him, or even speak to him. The man Gutierrez saw on the station with Bill just before he was killed was smoking a cigarette, and not a single pack was missing from the station. And Bill was found with his wallet in his pocket, which contained a $20 bill. This is looking more and more personal to me the closer I look. But there's one more element that we need to consider. The medical evidence.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Bill's autopsy was performed by Dr. Joseph Sapala at 1130 a.m. the morning after he was killed. The autopsy report itself is pretty short and sweet. Bill's tox screen was clean, he wasn't under the influence of any drugs or alcohol, and he had two fatal injuries, both gunshots to the chest. Now, we already knew that, but the details of those two shots helped to paint a picture of what happened that night. To begin with, let's talk about the type of gun used. Both bullets were found inside of Bill's chest. There was no exit wound. The rounds themselves were twenty-two caliber, for those of you who don't know a lot about guns, that's a very small round, just about as small as they come. A tiny projectile with very little gunpowder projecting it. It's also likely that the gun was a revolver, not a semi-automatic. Now that's not an absolute certainty, but likely. To begin with, you don't see an awful lot of semi-automatic 22 caliber pistols. And secondly, there were no shell casings found in the building. A semi-automatic gun ejects the shell casings out with each firing. A revolver doesn't do that. Although we can't rule out the possibility of the killer policing his brass, as some military types would say, meaning he could have picked up the shell casing so as not to leave behind any evidence. But that seems pretty unlikely given the short period of time between when Martinez heard the shots and when he saw the man exiting the building. So I think we're probably dealing with a revolver. But really, it's the angle of the wounds that I'm more interested in. For reference sake, Bill stood, according to the autopsy, at 73 and a half inches tall, or six foot one and a half. Bullet wound number one, that's just how it's listed, that doesn't mean that it was the first shot. There's really no way to know which shot came first, and in fact, I suspect that number one was probably the second shot. I say that because the shot entered Bill's body at a pretty extreme angle. It entered on the upper left side of his chest, near the shoulder, just a half inch below his clavicle or collarbone. The bullet entered his body near the shoulder and proceeded down and to Bill's right, the killer's left. It traveled through the upper lobe of Bill's left lung, severed the pulmonary artery, and punctured both the left and right atria of his heart. The projectile was recovered from his right pleural cavity. This shot alone was deadly. At a glance from the exterior, it appears that he was just hit in the shoulder, but the reality is that the shot came from above him and from his left the perfect angle to punch right through his heart. Now, I say that that was likely the second shot because there's no way that Bill could have been standing upright when the shot occurred, unless the unsub was in the rafters or holding the gun over his head. I think there are two far more likely scenarios. Either Bill was hunched over from the first shot when this one was fired, allowing for the entry angle, 
or he was on his knees. And I suppose a third possibility would be that he was sitting on the stool when this shot occurred, but I doubt it. The reason I doubt it is because gunshot wound number two was a level shot. It was left to right, on Bill that is, right to left for the person doing the shooting, but there was no up and down deviation at all. Meaning that it appears the Bill was standing straight upright and so was his killer when this shot was fired. It entered on the left side of his chest and traveled at an angle through both ventricles of his heart. My best guess is that Bill was standing upright when he was shot through the heart. Then he either collapsed to his knees and was shot a second time, or he hunched over from the first shot and that's when he was hit the second time. There was no soot or stippling around either of these wounds, which means that he was not shot at point-blank range, or even from a very close distance, like you would expect if he was shot as the result of a struggle, wherein the offender felt like he had no other choice but to pull the trigger. Given the accuracy of these shots, and the fact that there were two of them, as crazy as this sounds, Bill's murder has all the hallmarks of a hit. A double tap to the chest as retaliation for something. The only signs on Bill's body that could possibly be interpreted as him being involved in the struggle was a series of five bruises on his right forearm. Although, the bruises were noted as being brown and yellow in color. Typically, this is an indication that we're dealing with an older injury. The prosecution and defense must both have assumed the same because neither of them asked the doctor about those bruises at trial. And other than that, there were no injuries found on Bill's body. Assuming that the bruises were old, there is no sign of any struggle whatsoever. Just a knocked over stool right next to his body. So if there wasn't a struggle and the killer was in the station for over 15 minutes and he shot Bill twice, from what the ME determined to be from at least two feet away, and only the register insert was taken. He wasn't worried about Danny Martinez identifying him. He let him live. So why did he kill Bill? A closer look into Bill's victimology may help to answer that question. Bill's parents didn't like him hanging around with Danny Hartley. In fact, both of them told police that they thought Danny was trouble. He'd been in trouble with the law, and his mom even said that he was on parole at the time Bill was killed. And they felt like he was a bad influence on Bill. And in their interviews with police, Bill's parents identified two major risk factors in the final months of Bill's life. Bill's dad told police that Bill had been gambling quite a bit at the Leroy Pool Hall playing cards and pool for money. And although his dad didn't seem to think that he had a problem with the gambling, his mother disagreed. She told police that Bill did have a gambling problem. She even went so far as to confront the owner of the pool hall about the issue. Apparently, Tom Markham, the owner, promised Mrs. Little that he would no longer allow Bill into the hall. And then in another redacted report, I don't know who the source is, Someone told police that he had talked to Bill two to three weeks before the murder, and Bill told him that he owed someone $40 for gambling debts. So that's risk factor number one, the gambling problem. And number two is also concerning. Apparently, there had been a string of robberies going on at a restaurant called Molly's and a Sunoco station, both in Leroy. 
There had been seven robberies at these locations in the five months before Bill's death. Bill's mother told police that Bill had told her that he knew who was committing the robberies and that he was going to tell the police. And in fact, in another report, we find that Bill was even a suspect in one of the robberies that occurred the summer before. It seems that after Bill graduated, he lost touch with his high school friends because he was running with a much rougher crowd. And on top of that, there's another risk factor, a third one. In the police files, it's indicated that a number of people told investigators that Bill had started using cocaine and that the rumor going around was that Bill was killed over drugs. At this point, we have enough information to begin developing a profile of the unidentified subject that murdered Bill Little. I believe that based on witness statements, we're looking for a white male, tall and thin. The unsub has a known personal relationship to Bill. He's not a friend, but an associate, so to speak. He's probably older than Bill, mature, likely at least in his 30s. He has a history of violence and doesn't think twice about inflicting pain. He's an enforcer. He's criminally experienced. He's not afraid of the police. He's smart enough not to leave the cash register insert laying around with his fingerprints all over it and knew enough to make a quick exit and distance himself from the crime scene as soon as he had shot Bill, which is also an indication that he likely wasn't certain that that was going to happen when he walked in. It may have began with just a threat. And he's confident enough in his reputation for violence not to be bothered by the two eyewitnesses who saw him at the station. I think that either this unsub or a group that he belongs to is feared in the community, and he knows it. Fear is what provides his confidence. He's probably done jail time, likely both before and after Bill's murder. This is a violent man to his core, and I believe that there's not just one or two people out there who know who killed Bill Little. There are probably a lot of people who know. Bill's murder reads to me like he was killed to send a message. You can't send a message without letting people know what you've done. And along with that message comes the clear implication that if you talk, you die. And I'm willing to bet that there are people listening to this right now who know exactly who shot Bill. And they're afraid to come forward. So I want to take this opportunity to let you know that we do have a tip line and you can remain anonymous. That phone number is 269-224-2833. You have to take my profile with a grain of salt. I'm not an expert, and what you just heard is my amateur analysis. What we really need now is to bring in an actual expert. Someone who's profiled thousands of cases. Someone like retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Jim Clementi. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. 
All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.